This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to the Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year. Or you could just get a boob job. Using targeted Botox can be a miracle. Smiling like that is a skill. Your surgery has been successful. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smile Podcast. I'm Dr. Babak Azizadeh, and uh, I'm so glad you can join us today. We have a very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Florence Comite, who is uh, a renowned scientist, physician, author in New York City. And uh, we're going to today talk about uh, coronavirus and some of her um, special insight into this. Um, uh, Dr. Comite has been a uh, professor at Yale, has uh, been focused on precision medicine and really individualized medicine and has a center in New York City. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you, Dr. Zizadeh. It's my privilege and pleasure to be here too as well. Wonderful. So before we get started, I'd love for you to tell us your journey and history a little bit and what, how you got to where you're at so that you know, our, our listeners and audience kind of get to know you a little bit more, uh, all the wonderful things you've done. Okay, I'd love to. So as you mentioned, um, most of my career was spent in um, a very classical education. I went to Yale Medical School, subsequently trained in Yale, and my interest um, covered several fields as an overachiever. <laughs> I trained in four fields of endocrinology. So I got, I got to NIH and I did a fair amount of clinical research. I loved research ever since I really was in college. Um, I did research that looked at the brain and its involvement with hormones from little children in utero all the way through puberty and growth and development, fertility, and aging. And it occurred to me back in the 90s when I was at Yale that um, genetics was going to be huge, and that was the first time we discovered the genome. Yet, I didn't think it would give us all the answers because I'm an identical twin. Uh, my twin is smarter than me. She became that. a dermatologist. And I knew that there were significant differences between us, even though we were born identical. And you can't be more alike than that, right? So once I started that path, and as a researcher, I recognized that if you were studying people uniquely, they each had their own journey. And I began what I call the N of one, meaning I looked at each person uniquely as opposed to gathering up data on a lot of people and looking at the average and applying it as if it fits everybody. And I think you know quite well as a plastic surgeon that one size never fits all right. You have to fit exactly what you're thinking to the human being. And so I ended up creating a field and working in a field called precision medicine and health because I believe that if you get data beneath the surface before disorders of aging emerge, you actually can stop disorders like diabetes or heart disease or stroke or osteoporosis, any of those disorders, cancer even, before they take hold. And you can create people who are younger than their chronological years, keeping them healthier for life. So we think of it here as a health span to match your lifespan. And that's what I ended up doing, transitioning to New York a few years ago and building this center. And now we're trying to take what we learned and apply it to a digital app so it could be for everybody. Because I think we need help 
And I think each person could really track themselves in a way that can create health for themselves because I don't believe your genes need to be your destiny. Even if diabetes runs in your family or cancer, there are ways to detect way before you symptoms emerge or you feel ill. And that's, that's the journey I've been on. That's awesome. That's awesome. I don't know if you know, but my major in undergrad was microbiology and molecular genetics. Yes. And how interesting that now we're dealing with this coronavirus that people thought it's impacting everybody essentially the same. And there's perhaps everything that you've worked for is now coming into play with the coronavirus. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you think about this virus as it you know, fits into your precision medicine and of one and kind of maybe give our viewers some information that they may not know or it's not commonly discussed in, in the lay, uh, uh, lay public. So that's a great question. And I think you, you know, as you mentioned, we're here in the epicenter of New York City where it's been devastating. And even though there's the stay at home, you know, shelter at home, it's been still difficult. It's a whole new world out there. And that the reason for that is, of course, keeping people out of the hospital and the resources for ICU beds, for ventilators, to not become overwhelmed. And by doing so, I think we've been pretty successful and right now we're on a decline. But life has to resume and COVID-19 or coronavirus is not going away. So when I realized this was happening three months ago, two to three months ago, I began to think about why age was a factor for coronavirus and realized that it really wasn't age. Age was synonymous with comorbidities or heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure. When you're not well, you can't tackle disease in the same way. So infections can do you in. And many people will say, well, my mother or father, when you get their family history, died of old age. Pneumonia took them in the hospital. Yeah. And the old age might be 75 or 80, which is not old in my estimation. 120 or 130 might be old, but not 80 or 90 even in these days. And that's because pneumonia is an infection, and that's what COVID is. COVID creates a, a pneumonia-type illness or causes you to get sick. And people who don't have resources because they're otherwise sick and frail because they're older will be feeling the virus in a different way. So I decided, well, I bet it's similar to what I'm already doing. Let me take a look at it. I was lucky enough to work with um, a founder and the founder and chief medical officer at Boston Heart, who was already doing some research looking at the antibodies. And we began measuring the virus as well as antibodies. And exactly what I see in all my patients, everyone had a unique course. And so we were able to detect virus and antibody at different times and see that for example, fever isn't the most common complaint. Actually, energy, lack of energy, malaise, fatigue, and aches and pains, or myalgias as we call it in medicine, is much more common. What is absolutely unequivocally COVID is loss of sense of smell. That can lead to taste, loss of taste. And you know more than this because I know you're a facial plastic surgeon, but in my experience, when you lose your sense of smell, you it actually causes your loss of sense of taste. Is that is that correct? Yeah, because yeah. your sense of smell is ninety percent of our taste 
is the smell that's going up into the cribriform plate, the top part of our nose. Wow. So I knew that there was a reason for it. I've been telling people, but I didn't know why. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So as a result, we've been capturing stories, which is what I do in the N of one, meaning I like to know a person's history, family history, the, the lifestyle they live, what's their sleep like or stress, do they exercise or is their exercise sitting on a couch and changing the channels or how do they eat? And there's no judgment. It's just a matter of where are you in life on your health journey and where are you going? And that's what we did with COVID. So a lot of people were afraid and they described symptoms that could be COVID, but actually a lot of COVID symptoms are just like the flu. So in testing, we could tell a person that, no, you actually didn't have COVID is no sign of it, or your family actually did have it, or some members did, and we're just going through that now where we test six or eight or 10 members of a family, and we find that some were completely asymptomatic, but now are protected with immunity, and I can go into that, and others never that. had it, right? So it's fascinating. Yeah, so um, let's talk about some of the comorbidities that you think are important in Uh, family members. I mean, I think a lot of, I see a disconnect a little bit between millennials that are living on their own and, you know, maybe with, you know, uh, their spouse, children, but they they don't live in the same city as their parents versus people who are living in the same city with their parents because they're so worried about, you know, the comorbidities of people who are older than them. So what are the comorbidities that you think people should be aware of. And then also, I would love to know, what do you think the genetic factors are? Because people are reacting, it feels like differently to coronavirus, even with the same comorbidities. So, Yep, I absolutely, you've said a lot of important things there. So I'll start with what are the comorbidities? What are the risk factors? Well, there are reports already coming out that, for example, if you're a diabetic, you're far more likely, four times as likely, to end up on a respirator than if you're not a diabetic. And that, I, by that I mean not having diabetes. But this is even more important. If you're a diabetic, but you never knew you were a diabetic, you're eight times as likely. So that means the emerging syndrome or diabetes beneath the surface at the cellular level, where a doctor might have said to you, any time in the last couple of years, you know, your sugar is a little high, keep an eye on it. You actually might be at higher risk for COVID than somebody who's already taking care of their diabetes. And that's of great interest to me because when your sugar is a little high, you're only going to go one direction. Usually, even if you try your best, it's very hard to reverse it. This is certain principles of aging, like decrease in hormones, like testosterone, or difficulty losing visceral fat, or the fat that's part of your organs, difficulty putting on muscle, even if you work out, or genetic factors in diabetes that make it almost inevitable to change the course once your sugar starts creeping up, or even your insulin, fasting. So that's one example, high blood pressure. If you've been told, you know, your pressure's running a little bit high by your doctor, or periodically you check your pressure in a drugstore, that's another issue to be concerned about. Heart disease, cancer, certainly any kind of failure that or um, complication, or if you've been told that 
you better watch out because this is something we want to keep an eye on. It probably puts you at a little risk more than the person who doesn't have that under the surface because your body can't fight too many battles at once. And if you get a virus or any kind of infection, you're not going to do as well as somebody who doesn't have that pre-existing condition. And Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it seems like as a physician, and I'm not obviously practicing the level that you are in terms of being at the ground level as a, you know, uh, precision health expert. But the thing that kind of scares me a little bit is, you know, there's a randomness to it, a little bit of a randomness to it. So I'm just wondering, is it, are there genetic factors? Uh, we talk about cytokine storms, you know, this immune response. We talk about hypercoagulable state that people are getting into. What are the reasons these are happening? Is it at the genetic level or you think it's at a, you know, just the physical health or we just don't know yet? I think it's all of those factors. I think it's what we call multifactorial, meaning there are so many factors peeling them apart is a little difficult. But let's start with your question about genetic factors. There, there is reason to believe that genetic factors can drive who gets disease and who doesn't. Even in the days of the um, 1918 uh, flu and what stopped, what some people think stopped the war, um, because soldiers were dropping left and right in those years during World War I. Um, and I think even today, for example, there are folks, um, and I'll use myself, I don't know if you're aware that I had COVID and I was diagnosed oh early on, March 18th. No one around me got it. So my husband um, does not have it. He still doesn't have it. And we're testing regularly. My niece, who's mostly living with me, she has her own apartment, wow. but she's in and out a lot. The day before I got the diagnosis, she and I were making uh, banana chip bread and she stayed negative. And so, and there wasn't any self-isolation afterwards because we felt we were completely exposed and they didn't really stay isolated. Yet there are other families where um, one partner might get it, a child may get it, an adult child, and then the other partner may get um, an asymptomatic course and have the immunity, the IgG, which is the immunity antibody that imposes immunity. Uh, we don't know how long, but it imposes immunity. And there's no way to predict it. So one question that's come up besides genetic factors are your blood type. And there's some thinking that type O blood, for some reason, might be more protective. Again, I think that studies aren't quite there scientifically, so I keep an eye out for some of that, and I think it's very important. Um, several people can be exposed, and no one gets it to the prime person, I think, that is an important factor that we don't know why some people, you'll just skip right over it. There's some evidence that years ago, if you were exposed to um, Hong Kong flu in the 50s or other versions of COVID, you might have developed an immunity that would be similar and your body might have oh, wow. the ability to protect that. Oh, wow. um, and then, I mean, I can tell you lots of stories yeah. um, and that, you know, that would feed into it. But I do think the state of your health is really important. What you've been dealing with right before you get it, if, for example, you were sick on a couple of occasions, we have a couple, a young couple, where the, they wanted to go visit the par their parents, and they both definitely had it. 
the symptoms were clear. They both had a lack of smell and taste. They had fever in their case that had the aches and pains and fatigue. They came in about two to three weeks after um, this, they had the symptoms. They were not tested. That's one of the rate limiting findings we have that we yeah, cannot test. We can't test everybody. And right. that's why shelter at home, because there's no way to tell. And even doctors I take care of who are chief residents in hospitals, they would complain about symptoms and they would be told, it sounds like the flu, we're not going to test you. And in the end, they actually had COVID. So even in the epicenters like downstate in Elmhurst, where they're all COVID hospitals now, it's, it's scary in that way. And we saw this couple, this young couple just a couple weeks ago, and he had developed extreme immunity. He was definitely through it, and his immune number was quite high. And she, on testing, her swab was indeterminate. And when we retested two days later, it was positive. So she had a few strands. They didn't want to say it was positive. And she had a borderline response in terms of immunity. Right before she got COVID, she had two episodes of pharyngitis and was treated with penicillin. So one of the concepts that I've been building, because I've seen several cases like this, is that you have an inadequate immune response if you've just dealt with an infection or perhaps you've been put on an antibiotic. So I think there are several factors that need to be teased apart. And it doesn't mean if you're 60, 70, or 80, you're automatically going to succumb. There are people over 100 who have lived through it. And so I think we should take heart from that and just practice safe measures. And I can go into that a little later yeah. if you'd like. Why don't we actually go into that now? And then I'd love to also get your input on testing because that's where I feel like, oh my God, every day I have like, I'm on these group chats with doctors. Oh, this test and that test. No, you can't right. trust this. So why don't we go through a little bit of the protective measures that okay. people can take at home. Maybe they're with a loved one that potentially can have it. What can what should we do that's you know th that's gonna protect us as best as we can? So if somebody starts developing symptoms and fever is one, but it's not the major symptom, that's a good example of what we do in medicine. We latch onto something that is measurable and then we say, that's what you have to screen for. And in fact, they're doing extensive screening. Like some, nobody can come into my apartment building if they have a fever. And I personally didn't have a fever and only about 50% of the patients I've talked to had a fever. It's much more common, I believe, to have the overwhelming fatigue and the aches and the pains. And what's really clearly connected to COVID as opposed to the flu or as opposed to an upper respiratory infection or sinusitis is the loss of, of smell that leads to the loss of taste. And you can get that in other conditions. I myself have had it with the sinusitis. Yeah, allergies, sinuses. Exactly. But this has happened so fast in the face of other kind of complaints and symptoms that you can pretty much say to a person, 99%, you know? You don't say 100%, you know, wow, say yeah. 0%. <laughs> yeah. And I've been pretty much been positive every time we, we get that story. We either find the antibodies or we find the virus. Um, wearing a mask is very important. Um, outside on the street, even if you're positive um, and you think you've already been through it, um, we still don't know if you're susceptible to getting it again without antibodies. And we don't know how long the antibodies actually last. Wow. 
That's and where knowing, you're doing your research. <laughs> exactly. And we're hoping to follow certain people longitudinally, which we're already doing, where we test them every week to two weeks to see what's happening to their antibodies and what's happening to COVID. There's grades of amount of virus that you actually can get. And it, another theory is the bigger the load of virus, the more likely you're going to trigger a storm, a cytokine storm. And that's why some of our brave heroes in the hospital actually get very, very sick and end up on respirators. And we pray for them because they're taking care of very sick people. And it's, we imagine that they're getting bigger loads of virus than some of us out in the community. Um, some people shelter in place, and when they get sick and they find out they think they have it, for example, Governor Cuomo's uh, um, brother is a very famous one, yeah. and he completely kept himself isolated, and yet his wife got um, the COVID as well, yeah. and then one of his children. In my case, we had already shared so much. My husband and my niece did not really self-isolate, and neither of them have gotten positive. So we stayed, you know, we were, we acknowledged the fact that we didn't want to share the virus, but we weren't, we weren't really staying isolated in our own home. And um, to date, I'm the only one who's had the virus and the same goes to the people I work with. So, but if you have vulnerable people in your home and you also have children, because I don't think children are immune and now we're finding that there's a condition that children get and they're hospitalized and some of them get quite ill either with COVID or subsequently. And so we're a little concerned about yeah, we have to be as well. Anxious. Yeah. So let's get into testing. Okay. Because Great. I know you've, you've been, you know, uh, very, very involved in knowing and being involved with the com companies that are developing state of the art testing. And right now what I feel is there is so much confusion, both amongst the physicians. We're right now trying to develop plans of going back to surgery. And we're trying to develop plans for our staff, for our nurses, for our patients, what tests to do, what not to do, how to do it, when to do it. So maybe you can give us a little guidance of what you know about it. And then we can, you know, that, that hopefully will clarify some stuff for, for me personally. <laughs> Okay. I'd love to. Well, first, I think the confusion started because there were a lot of tests out there that had the wrong answer, meaning they weren't really quality tests. Uh, do it yourself or at home. And you got what we call false negatives and false positives. You didn't know more false negatives and false positives. You really didn't know if the test adequately could show the virus. And that made for a lot of confusion. I remember one couple with two young children in the Hamptons that we tested um, the gentleman said he thought he was sick about a month ago. Then his wife just got sick. She had her symptoms were worse and she got tested. But the doctor told them who tested them, the doctor told her it two thirds of the tests will be false negative. Well, how will that be helpful? If, if it's false negative, it means she could be positive, but the test won't show it in 60% of cases. So we ended up testing the family and it turns out that he had the immunity, he had already had it, had the immunity, and she did not have COVID. She had no sign of the virus or any oh, wow. of the immunity. And she was at a stage where we could have found it. Now, there are tests that we are now doing. So the swab test that looks at RNA, which is called PCR, is the best test to do. And most labs have that now. So Quest, yeah. LabCorp, Biotech, 
Boston Heart. You can test for that and should get an answer if you're done if you've done the test correctly, which is an annoying test. And yeah. You're the expert all there. All the way to the back of the nose if you want to get it right. Exactly. And so you feel it. I've had it multiple times now. I can't say it gets any better with yeah. time and practice. And if you get it right, you'll and you pick up virus. Now what's very interesting is that it can go from a big load of virus to a tiny load. And so far, labs won't distinguish. And that's annoying, too, because we like to see two negatives like a week apart before saying someone is cleared. So that's an important concept. And here's why. Only one person that I've tested since the beginning has been negative at two weeks. And yet the directions from the CDC and elsewhere say, you're fine in 14 days, right? Isolate for 14 days and then go back. Untrue. Yeah. So you can still be contagious, but we don't know how contagious. We don't know if there's a few fragments left at three weeks, but every single person I've tested, with the exception of one, who had an unbelievable response and has very high, she had the highest um, chronic immunity we found. She tested negative, but everybody else tested positive after three weeks and some went on to test positive at six weeks. So this is not something that goes away in everybody. And you've probably heard of people complaining that no one believes them when they say they're still tired and they haven't, they had the virus six weeks or two months ago. But I'm here to say that that is absolutely positive, you know, yeah. is, that, that can happen. So the, the antibody test is a little more complex because there are versions of it, and I'm going to divide it into two classes. One is a class where you see a, you're either reactive or non-reactive, and that speaks to the long-term immunity, the IgG. That's the immunity you want to score 100, and literally it's 100. So it goes from 1 to 100, and the higher your score, the better the off you're going to be. So that's the one thing, just I'm going to interrupt you, that you taught me was, it's not just a plus minus. Right. It's how, how much you, I mean, it's like the, the, the quantity of it that's exactly. important. It's okay. called, we call it the antibody titer. And there are a couple of ways to do it. You can do it with a test called the ELISA test, or you can do it with something called chemoluminescence. And the labs who are doing it do a very good job. The percent of accuracy is in the 90s. This is not something where you're going to get a false test, but you have to use the right test. It is not a test you can get an immediate result, but as labs ramp up and they're not as ramped up as we want them to be, we're getting results back between two days and a week, um, a work week. But I think as the labs ramp up, we'll get it even faster. Okay. Now, where we are today with the flu, for example, where you can go into an urgent care and know is a different kind of test altogether. And that would work for the population, but we're not quite there yet. That's a different test. That's where they have an antibody. And if the antigen is present, meaning it binds and will detect the COVID immediately. And if it's positive, it lights up and you can be told, yes, you have the flu. And that's the hope for the future, being able to quickly detect, are you positive? We don't have that yet. Okay. Now, one of the questions that I have is the coronavirus has impacted different cities very differently. And why is it that New York, Italy, Spain, 
Iran to a certain extent, very, very different outcomes than what we had in Los Angeles, you know, and other parts of the world. What, what do you think contributed to that? Was it a different strain? That's what some people say, or was it just the environment and, you know, the shelter in place and so forth? So I think it's a combination again of those factors, but first of all, remember New York is a huge destination and people are crowded together here. We, we don't even have cars, most of us. We use um, public transportation. It's very hard to get the distance that you need uh, to stay apart from people. People live in crowded, smaller apartments and the homes you have in LA um, and elsewhere. So that's one big factor. Um, another factor, I think, is how soon the government shut down and put in place the shelter in place and stay home. Um, in California, you started a little sooner because I believe the mayor of San Francisco was following a company in Toronto called Blue Note. And they were able to track the Chinese government, what was happening in China and in um, Italy and saw not only where people were traveling, but phones. And they were able to ping GPS on phones and see where the virus would pop up. And you had said earlier in our conversation that, that it probably started before February, March, and you're quite right, because different individuals would come through, and yet we didn't know yet. We weren't aware of COVID. Yeah. So as soon as a person got it, and the first index case that became a big deal here in New York was a lawyer who, it was fascinating to, to hear this all of a sudden, he was a lawyer in a, a big firm in New York um, from a, a, a part of New York called New Rochelle, which is in Westchester. And all of a sudden, his a couple of his children, his wife, they had several children, went to different schools and they became the index family, if you will, everybody. because we hadn't, and everybody, everything started shutting down immediately. So Westchester became, or New Rochelle became the nidus, and it tumbled down from there, and that's where we all became aware that things better shut down. But think, think back to Davos or some of the big conferences, there was no discussion of COVID. The, the focus was on climate change, and that's amazing to me when you look back historically at what was going on. I know. Just a few months. I mean, I know. literally, you know, no one, it's, it's crazy what has happened, like in a matter of like just three, two months. So. And, and to what degree, and I'm not, I'm not the expert here and I don't even have, uh, you know, my comments are so, you know, benign in, in a sense because I really don't have the knowledge base, but to what degree was information not freely shared? How do we know what we know now is yeah. it all there i've heard you know we've all heard that there was a farmer's market with bats that transferred it and i've also heard that there were no bats in this market but across the square there was the biggest most well-known virology lab yeah. and that there's so there's a lack of knowledge and maybe knowledge that was kept secret that some you know some order of suspicion on a political level that i won't even get into so i think there was fear of shutdown what are people what will people do with their children i know in new york there was pushback in some level because it's very difficult what are you going to do with your children everyone shuts down how do essential workers work who's going to take care of the children who's going to take care of parents there was no solution that was readily available it was a scary time 
and not having testing and you know and that was the biggest the issue protective right. equipment I feel lucky that we were able to jump on that as a physician with relationships with the lab. We literally got 10 swabs from Quest and 10 from Boston Heart. And if we return them, which most doctors couldn't because they shut their offices, yeah. they couldn't continue. We were lucky enough to stay uh, open and I was grateful to my staff. We had two weeks in March from March 16th to the end of March where we jumped on it all. We were able to contact every single patient, test the ones, make sure that we were in touch with that needed to be tested and then friends of friends and we opened it up to anybody who knew our patients if they needed to be touched and if they needed to have some information and background. That's amazing. What do you think about treatments and vaccine, what do you see in the horizon? What do you think, um, you know, I know there are so many clinical trials that are happening right now, but what, what's your sense of- uh, So lots of big companies. companies. Yeah, lots of big companies are applying. It's a great week to ask, because just this Tuesday, one lab, uh, Modera, Moderna, mm -hmm. has just gotten approval for a 600 patient trial, which is gonna go into effect. Um, they're going to, they're at stage two, they had some good outcomes. And so we're looking for that to happen almost right away. And then I think stage three or opening up might occur concurrent with the fall, which would be amazing because we'd be way ahead of schedule. I trust in, you know, Dr. Fauci. I think he's, uh, he, he's, he's been, amazing. he is, and he was, you know, the leader of the whole AIDS um, the change in the vaccines yeah. that we got. And so I think that we're following somebody who really can make a difference. I think there are other issues to look at, like keeping everyone in place. What is that doing to the economy? What is that doing to people's lives? Is that more dangerous in some ways? Particularly if COVID is not going away, if we can follow some safety principles, how do we live life and go on with our life even with the virus? Yeah, because it, it seems like you know, to go back to normal, we have to almost have a treatment or a vaccine that allows, you know, the, you know, almost, you know, the panic to subside for us to go back to normal. Uh, do you feel that way? Or do you think something different? I think living in the midst of it and feeling the energy here that people, both the fear and the panic, but also the clapping and the cheering and the noise yeah. that goes on in the city at seven o'clock is amazing. I think tonight JetBlue is going to fly over the city at seven o'clock. Wow. And there've been so much, you know, so much, so many people who come out, you know, artists and um, Broadway theater folks and, and do their own thing. And it's really cheered everybody up to do that. So I'm of a mind that if we keep certain safety measures in place, if we all wear masks, which is difficult. I, I visited Japan a couple of times and I didn't enjoy the, the look of masks on everybody. Now I understand why. But I think if we're cautious and careful and appropriately social distancing, I think in the way that needs to be done, Certain businesses will prosper, others might suffer. It's difficult to think of restaurants with social distancing and schools are gonna have their own challenges. 
But I think life has to go on. I really yeah. do. I'm of the mind that we have to modify some of the fear and panic and look at what the resource, I think we have to weigh the resources the hospitals have with what the choices each of us as individuals might make and somewhere in between is a compromise. But I think the world has to go on because we can be facing bigger challenges in fact, you know what they're talking about now in New York is firing these very heroes at the hospital, nurses and doctors, because they can't afford to keep the hospitals open. There's yeah, no because they're, all the resources have gone to COVID and exactly. they're not doing elective surgery and other things that were generating you know, income for them. So we're hearing from surgeons and other doctors. I did a Zoom NAR this morning and invited all my doctor colleagues, and now they're calling to get tested and get their offices tested because they have to be back and working. One of my other colleagues, my own GI doctor, was back doing um, uh, colonoscopies and endoscopies because you know he needs to get back to work and doing it very carefully. The doctors that are working in hospitals have COVID, and they're just given luckily, hopefully, um, PPE gear that protects them, protects the individuals. Yeah. What do you think, by the way, before we, we head off, this is my own curious question. What do you think the ideal testing scenario is before someone having surgery? This is just my own <laughs> well, you know what? I'm getting be, ready maybe, this, right. maybe this is a good segue if we have a few minutes for of me course. to show a few of the slides that you might yeah. be interested. Do you want to Please. do that? Do you want to should I share the screen or do you yeah. want to share the screen? No, no, go ahead. You can share okay. your screen. Let me do that. It will pop up. Okay. Excellent. Is that seen? Can you see it? That is a graph here. And on this graph, does no. that has that showed up? No. Okay. Share. Okay. Yeah, go. it's coming up. Perfect. Okay, great. So what I want to share here is that this is a graph that um, shows you there is one little dot here. And in regular conventional medicine, we tend to treat everybody as if they're all the same. This little dot of an average, this is what's called a normal curve. And yet, when we really look at what's happening, what we really see is, let me see if I can see that. Um, is what we see are people are all along this graph and they're all different. And so the kind of sharing that we really wanna do and the kind of testing is really unique. What we really wanna see is a combination of, do you have the virus or do you not? So it would get people out of quarantine and back to work. It identifies people who are previously infected and immunity with or without symptoms. The tests that we now have are sensitive, reliable, and actually reproducible. And you can see titers of these actual antibodies. That's what we really need to look at. So there were two antibodies. One is IgM. So we're looking at the virus as one thing, and we're looking at the antibodies as separate tests. And these are blood tests. There's IgM and there's IgG. And IgM goes up first, usually by a week, after you get the virus, and sometimes as early as three or four days. IgG is the long-standing immunity, or what we call chronic immunity, and it goes up by two weeks. So that's the first you see it. Um, it can go up as early as 10 days, but it's usually two weeks. And this is just a pattern of what it looks like. So here's a few combinations. So if you have a positive viral swab, and that's a PCR. 
The swap uh, PCR, is PCR, exactly. Okay, yes. good. The RNA, you look the at the RNA. fragments of the virus. And if your swab is positive, but your IgM and your IgG are negative, it means you're contagious, as you see here, but you're not, you're not anywhere close to having any kind of immunity. So you're very acute. You're early in the stage of your condition, and you better, you should take good care of yourself. If your swab, which is the PCR and your IgM were positive, but your IgG is negative, you are contagious still, but you're acute and you don't have long-standing immunity. So that IgM tells us that you're still dealing with the virus in your own body and you wanna be careful. And if you're all positive, which seems amazing, but this is how confusing it can be, you're still contagious and this can be seen three weeks out but your immunity has begun in progress, it's in progress. But if your swab is now turned negative and your IgM is positive, I know this sounds very complicated because it was for me to figure this out, yeah. and your IgG is negative, you're not contagious at this point, but you're still not well and you should be at home, relaxing, taking care of yourself. Your immunity has not kicked in yet. And this would be typically seen at maybe around two weeks in some people. Now, if both of your antibodies are positive, but your swab is negative, you're still not feeling well, but your immunity is in progress. And that IgG number is really important. The higher it is, the better served you are, and the closer it is to 100. Many people hover around five or 10. And most people, if you've heard about using plasma, to, um, to treat very sick people, you actually are not well served if your plasma doesn't have an IgG higher. of over 20. Yeah, higher, exactly. In fact, they use 6.5 as a cutoff, but the better plasma has a higher number. So here's where you really want to score. And now, if your swab and IgM are negative, but your IgG is positive, congratulations. You've made it through. You're now immune to some degree. And again, we don't know how long that immunity is gonna last for, but it should be sufficient for you to feel, hopefully in this season, do well and not get the COVID again, not relapse. And I think that's a very important point because people are worried about it, but following those numbers are clear. And that's why, to me, it's more valuable to get the quantifiable where you can see the titers. I think there's a role for the qualitative one. And I don't know if you're interested, but I can give you a case. Yeah, where you, I love that. Yeah, you might have children, for example, exposed to a nanny who got sick. We had one such family where we tested the parents because they were afraid they had symptoms that were that were thought of as the COVID, turned out to be probably a flu-like illness. And we tested them twice. And then they reported the nanny who went home after, shortly after the family had had a newborn baby because she wasn't feeling well five days later. She clearly had COVID. We only knew afterwards because we tested her and she had IgG, but the timing worked such that the her people she had been most exposed to was the baby and the older children. So here's where not subjecting a newborn or a baby that was three months old and older children who were oh, below the age of nine to blood test 
might make sense to do a quick little finger prick where you might see it, it's reactive or not. And then making the decision based on their health parameters, do they go on to be checked for the virus or a more specific antibody test, that would come in handy. Or testing large groups of people and then dividing them up into different categories, though that's where it might make sense. So it's not an all or nothing decision. Well, I think that the important thing that we, I, I got out of this amazing podcast is that the more information we have, true information, especially with testing, will allow not only us to, as a physician, as well as a, just an individual, help limit the transmission of the virus, but also help the economy, getting people back to work, getting out of you know, this you know, social isolation and stay at home. And so this is, I think, as you know, was predicted is the most important aspect of the next few months for us in our Absolutely, economy. I think you said it beautifully. I think that the value of data is using that data to make decisions that give you the wisdom to decide how you keep people safe, but get them back to work, get the economy going again. I think it's very harsh for some of us who have seen the suffering when you don't have money and you don't know when you're gonna yeah. be able to put food on the table, pay your mortgage, take care of your family. That's yeah. scary. Well, I wanna thank you. This has been wonderful, amazing. Thank you for sharing uh, knowledge with us. And we'd love to have you again, hopefully after the coronavirus, to talk about some <laughs> of the other really amazing things. She. Uh, Dr. Comite, this is the book you gave me at some point. <laughs> so I'd love to really get, um, because other healthcare issues are happening too. And Absolutely. Well, Keep to, It Up, which is yeah. the name of the book, is about your health. And I think if it, the coronavirus has really shown me that it applies to every single condition. If we Everything. can keep our health, keep our immunity, we have the ability, instead of getting frail, as we get older, which we all take for granted, there's no reason to do that. If we have the data, we can help people stay healthy and own their own health destiny. That's really always been my goal. How do we give that information to everybody? And that's what we're working on here at the Center in New York. Awesome. And I can't wait to do another podcast based on that once we're through this coronavirus and once hopefully you're in Los Angeles visiting us. For sure. And I hope we can exchange favors. I'd love to interview you as well as we continue to mature and grow here. So thank, thank you, you so for having much. me. Thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners and viewers, please um, uh, give us suggestions, comments about this podcast. Uh, subscribe to our podcast and please rate us. Let us know what we can do better and hopefully topics that you're interested in. Thank you again, Dr. Kamate, and um, you have a great rest of your day.